politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. The point of the feminine mystique was not to change... It was not a political document. It was not meant to change society. It was meant to describe this illness that was afflicting America. It was a critique in the style of other critiques that were being written at the time. What could go right? I'm Zachary Carabell, the founder of The Progress Network, and joined, as always, by my co-host, Emma Varvalukas, the executive director of the Progress Network. The spirit of all this has been and will continue to be that there's a lot going on in the world that is positive, that is constructive, that we don't pay as much attention to, given that there is a lot going on in the world that is negative and destructive that we do pay a lot of attention to. So what do people do about it in a way that is constructive rather than wallowing in the nadir and destructive loops? And that is why we have these conversations. And today we're going to talk about something that remains deeply unresolved in spite of assiduous efforts of a lot of people to resolve, which is gender politics and the role of women in society. And historically, what the beginning is of our contemporary movements toward more gender inequality. Today, we're going to be talking to Rachel Steyer, who's an award-winning essayist, critic, and writer. She's the head of the Dramaturgy and Dramatic Criticism Program at the Theater School at DePaul University. We are going to be talking about her latest book, which is called Betty Friedan, Magnificent Disruptor. It's a biography of the woman who wrote The Feminist Mystique, if that means anything to you. It was a 1963 bestseller that gave middle-class women a language for their unspoken dissatisfaction and oppression. The book struck a major chord, and Friedan, who was a writer and an activist, went on to found the National Organization of Women, which advocated for women's rights as human rights in the United States and elsewhere. And she sparked what's now known as the second wave of feminism. And for those keeping track, we are now in the fourth wave, and some people think post-feminism. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. Cool. I'm looking forward to it. Let's do it. So good to have you with us this morning, Rachel. And for those who don't know, which would be everybody except Rachel or me, I was actually one of the people that you interviewed for your Betty Friedan book because I had my own kind of odd encounters with Betty Friedan when I was, I guess, 10 to 12 years old, 9 to 13 in the 70s in the Hamptons via my mother and her community. So it's a real pleasure to talk to you today. I think one thing that I'm struck by is kind of how uh, 
recent her life was and how distant her life feels. I don't know, in, in the sense of, you know, there's so much of what she wrote about and so much of the feminine mystique that has kind of entered our cultural DNA permanently. But her footfall and imprint seems oddly dissipated. I mean, maybe that's true of a lot of people. I don't know. Does that resonate with you, Rachel, when you were like writing about this and talking about Absolutely. it? Absolutely. Yes. First of all, thanks for having me. I'm so thrilled. Her ideas about what feminism was dated much earlier. They were issues of equality and representation, pay equality, representation in politics, childcare, reproductive rights. Those were her issues, including her idea that the mainstream feminist movement had gone too far, that it was too radical, which was a constant cry of hers beginning in the late 60s and then on through the rest of her life. And I think that accounts actually in part for why she seems distant, because she rejected a, a lot of that radical feminism, which has become the dominant narrative of feminism. Second wave feminism is the idea of the sexual revolution and, of course, sexual identity politics as part of that when I think about Betty, what I think about is that we haven't really achieved the very basic rights that she was interested in. We have made enormous strides on identity issues, right? That kind of representation. But in terms of childcare, reproductive rights, equal pay, representation in government, and that sort of thing, we haven't, women have not really, they haven't done it. So Zachary and I had uh, someone on the podcast, Richard Reeves, that talks about the striking sort of pull ahead of women and girls as far as education in terms of way more women and girls are now high school valedictorians, way more women and girls go into college. And if you take that argument generously, you know, as Zachary and I did at the time, I was saying like, well, maybe this is where we're finally going to start to see the representation you're talking about as far as representation in government and Fortune 500 companies and stuff like this, you know, like really like high points of society where I think it takes the longest to change. Tying into that, I, what I was going to ask you is, is that why you went back to her as far as a, a biography? Because she, you know, dissipating in public consciousness, it's to the point where I was born in 1990 and Zachary was like, let's talk about Betty Friedan on the podcast. I was like, who's Betty Friedan? <laughs> you know, like, oh. And then I realized she wrote the feminist mystique. And I was like, oh, I, okay, I can like put her into the slot now. But you know, even you write in the book, like she would probably be canceled nowadays. So yeah, why did you go back to her, particularly in this yeah. time? 10 years ago, which was the 50th anniversary of the feminine mystique, I wrote an article for the Chronicle of Higher Education Review, which is a newspaper for scholars, but it covers university beat or whatever, but they have this review, which is sort of more literary. And so I wrote about the 50th anniversary of the feminine mystique. And then I wrote about some other books that were coming out that had just come out at the time. One was Hannah Rosen's The End of Men. Another one was Naomi Wolf's book about her rediscovery in her fifties. And so my experience, I had never read The Feminine Mystique. 10 years ago. <laughs> and so I was reading The Feminine Mystique and I was just blown away by it. The writing is very kind of no holds barred, argumentative, punchy. 
And it ma- it makes for a great read. It also is irritating and in some places dated and so on. But overall, the idea is women should have autonomy. And that was amazing. And then I was reading these other books and I felt that they either borrowed from Betty's argument without crediting her because they didn't mention her or they argued with her in ways that I felt were kind of derivative or whatever. And so I wrote this piece, which was a defense of the feminine mystique. And a lot of people really liked the piece. And not long after that, I was asked to write this book. So it was a commission. It's not like I was thinking for many years, wow, I would really love to write the biography of Betty Friedan. But once I had written this piece and once I got into it, it was very exciting. I mean, it was obviously it's different from my first three books, (laughs) wildly different, but it does share one thing, which is that the women in, in all the cases, the women are kind of going against some public norms, even though the norms are very different in all in the different cases that I've written about. But I think, I, you know, I always thought of that as a thread. So that's the basic story. We'll be right back after this break. The government of Kenya pledged to end gender-based violence by 2026. The Ministry of Health in Uganda is trying to eradicate yellow fever. It's ambitious to make these kinds of pledges, but it is much harder to achieve these lofty goals. Are these leaders really delivering on these promises for women and girls? Tune into a new season of The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women, a podcast from Foreign Policy, as reporters across Africa meet courageous women holding leaders accountable in various sectors, including healthcare, startups, and the government. Listen to Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Emma. They say you should learn something new every day. It's good advice, but with so much to do in your daily life, how are you going to make the time to learn and stay curious about our world? Well, with Everything Everywhere Daily, you can easily make that goal an actual reality. Everything Everywhere Daily is one of the world's most popular daily education podcasts and a top three history podcast. In about 10 minutes, you can learn something new every day. The show covers history, science, geography, mathematics, and technology, as well as biographies from some of the world's most interesting people. Fans of the show are so passionate that you even work to join the Completionist Club, the group of dedicated listeners who have listened to every single one of the show's more than a thousand and counting episodes. All of the episodes are informative, interesting, and best of all, always under 15 minutes. So go ahead, learn something new every single day with Everything Everywhere Daily. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to What Could Go Right. So I have a question for Emma in this, which is like, given that you were aware of the feminine mystique as a pivotal text or central text, I suppose, when you're reading and thinking about what Rachel has illuminated of Betty Friedan's life, does a lot of it feel like, oh, of course, meaning so much of what she pointed out in your growing up has been just accepted as a given, or does a lot of it also feel strangely other both i would say both i mean i grew up with a you know my mom raised me from the age of 12 and she was an entrepreneur so the idea that like the point in my life was to get married and not go to college and be a housewife feels so alien to me that 
it's hard to imagine the world that Friedan occupied not too long ago, as we've spoken about on other episodes of the podcast, right? Like, this wasn't too long ago in history that she had to point this out. I, I think it is a given, I think, for most people my age these days, and I think even more so for Gen Z and Gen Alpha, if you're a woman, that it's taken for granted that you're going to go and do something with your life other than have a family. And I don't mean that in a derogatory way towards having a family. At the same time, there is like this weird backlash that you see with like the traditional wives on TikTok and things of that nature. Rachel, I'm wondering if you could pick on that, pick up on that thread as well, <laughs> the, the backlash that no. we're seeing these days to those ideas. Yeah, no, I agree. Emma, I agree with what you're saying. I think on the, obviously on the one hand, there has been for younger women, the idea that you don't have to get married, right? That is, so that's an advance. There are different ways that you can live. But then I also think that there is this incredible persistence of these conventional, whatever you want to call them, 1950s ideas. I I don't follow TikTok so much, so I don't know if I can comment on that. But I think there's other, you know, like reality television, the Real Housewives, and so on. The feminine mystique and the problem that have no name, which is what Betty called this idea that women were supposed to get married and, you know, sit around in the suburbs. The book is about that. But it also, again, to me, it's about women having autonomy. Feminine mystique. It defines women solely in terms of her sexual relation to man as a uh, uh, man's sex object, as wife, mother, homemaker, and never in human terms as an individual person, as a human being herself. It's interesting. There was also one way one could look at this, and I was struck by this reading your book, that what Friedan had talked about as a particular constraint and straitjacket for American, maybe a little bit Western women, although we could have a whole side conversation about whether Simone Weil and Jermaine Greer, who were coming out of a different European context, whether it was really the same framework or different. But you also had multiple strains in the 50s where you had the man in the gray flannel suit, so the male version yes. of it, like that there was a framework that men yes. were supposed to be. And then you yes. had the racial aspects. There was a framework that you know different classes of races were supposed to be. So in many ways, her book comes at this time where all of those frameworks are getting exploded. Yes, and even if her lens was right. gender, each of them, you know, were being blown apart. Yes, exactly. I mean, I definitely see the feminine mystique as being part of that same social critique world as the man in the gray flannel suit. Betty wanted women to live up to their potential, and she didn't see that happening. And it really upset her. And it came from a deep personal place, too. She was right in there just like being herself all the time. And there was no filter. And she wanted other women to do that, too. She didn't want women to be constrained by these ideas about gender. And I think that the man in the gray flannel suit was accepted as a critique. But when Betty wrote The Feminine Mystique, the idea that there just should be a space to talk about women and how there were these gender roles and how they were guided by Freud and universities and so on, there wasn't a space for that. And so this persona that Betty developed, in my thinking, comes directly out of the fact that no one wanted to give her a space to talk about this. It was not considered to even be worthy of a conversation, really. 
And I mean, I often think about her as screaming because no one was listening to what she was saying. And I guess I feel like women, this is Emma, to your question. Yeah, there have been some advances. I feel like women still are struggling to have that space just to talk about like how to escape these constraints, whatever the constraints are in the media. I mean, for example, the media, okay, there's a lot of talk about like differently shaped bodies or whatever in fashion magazines. Okay, there's a lot of talk about that, but then you rarely see that. I don't know if I entirely agree with that, to be honest. And I I have to say, especially because I live in Greece now, and Greece is like 50 years behind kind of everything when it comes to comparing the US with, with Greece, and in particular with things like this that are cultural, like women's rights and where the conversation is around women. And what I see in Greece, I think, is like what probably was similar to what you saw in the United States in maybe the 80s or the 90s. But in the US, I feel like my social media feed is like constantly filled with all different kinds of people that look different kinds of ways and are different ways. I am wondering like what constraints you still see operating on women these days that are not tied in with like Me Too and sexual politics. Because that and maternal leave seem to be like the two biggies for me. But I feel like for Dan would not agree with that. We don't have pay equity. We don't have reproductive rights in the States. We don't have childcare. There's huge ageism, especially around women on other of Betty's campaigns. I mean, I would say just those four for starters. I mean, we don't have representation in government. You know, Betty thought that there would be a female president in like 1976. We haven't really done that well there. I also would say Betty was really interested in unifying women from different political, this is more later, after the feminine mistake, when she co-founded NOW. Her idea about NOW was to unite women from different political perspectives, including conservative women, Republicans, and housewives, and also radicals. And a lot of women on the left did not want to do that. They only wanted to talk to radicals and progressives. And that's another reason why Betty parted ways with with them. I mean, to me, that was extraordinary that she wanted to do that. And I don't think we've succeeded. Betty wanted a big tent, but the people in the tent only wanted a big tent w- with people like them. That's an interesting question of the, like the progress question is always challenging, right? Because we live in the moment that we live in and, there were, and we're faced with the constraints that we're faced in. And then that magical mystery to our question, that's such a great parlor game because it will never be answered of what would that person who is now dead feel about the future, which is now our present. If you plopped her down in 2023, would she go, wow, there has been movement here. There's been regress. Would it be just kind of a muddy mix of all of it? And to your ageism point, by the way, it's fascinating because ageism was so intense that her book on ageism, nobody read, right? Like they just ignored it. They still listened to a lot of other things she said, but nobody was very interested about Betty Friedan talking about age when she was. No one wants to talk about age, period, Zach, is what I would say. Like, It's a perfect QED for the statement you just made. (laughs) Yeah. But so I, I gather from what you're saying, Rachel, that you think that she would, and you certainly do see their at best incomplete and at worst regress, right? Certainly, in can you argue that reproductive rights is not a regret? I mean, and childcare, we've in the United States, we have nothing. I think Betty's response would be okay, if we had passed the ERA, it would be a totally different picture. And that is a sort of also an answer to your question. I think she was devastated, like many other uh, feminists of that time, that the ERA did not pass. 
And she considered that to be a huge failure. She hoped that it would galvanize the women's movement, like to regroup. And it didn't really, it didn't really do that. For those who listeners who don't know, ERA is Equal Rights Amendment, which I do feel some people probably don't know anymore. It's like another thing that's faded. Yeah. Well, the Equal Rights Amendment was an attempt to make women's rights, to put women's rights in the Constitution. And Betty thought that, and many other feminists, not just Betty, thought that really would solve a number of these problems that we're talking about. When it didn't happen, I think she felt she began to give it, you know, upset about her legacy and also the legacy of the women's movement and to really be thinking about, I don't know, like what had they really accomplished in the 60s? And so I think if she were to come in on today, I think, yeah, she would be thinking about that. Even at the end of her life, she was certainly thinking about it. She was very upset that there was in her mind so much work to be done and most of the fight these days has gone on to sexual politics, as we were talking about before. Yes. Like there, I think there's definitely an organized pushback against reproductive rights in red states, but it is striking you know, to hear you speak about the lack of organization around maternal leave, childcare, as you say. Like I think when people think of feminists these days, they think about Me Too. They don't think about, right. let's close the gender pay gap by providing better maternal leave and options for mothers right. to the workforce. Exactly. I was going to ask you about a critique for uh, for Dan that you raised in the book that I believe an Israeli feminist raises to her on a trip to Israel that she takes, whether she had made it possible for women to pursue their passionate journey or had she merely displaced women's enslavement from housework to their professional functions. I particularly wanted to ask you about it because that is the number one pushback I see on social media when the Progress Network posts videos that are about any kind of feminist issue. Usually we do talk about social attitudes, if women should work outside the home, how those have changed, or the gender pay gap, things like that. The number one pushback is women work outside the house and society has collapsed and the family has collapsed and women now just have to be slaves just like men used to be. (laughs) So what do you make of that? Right. I mean, yeah, I think that critique is a really smart critique of Betty. And I think it, I wish I could be on a panel about it somewhere or see a panel or something. I, I mean, I think this is really maybe is not exactly in Betty's defense, but it's more a kind of explanation of what she was talking about. She wasn't really talking about women when she was talking about women going to work in the feminine mystique, it wasn't really about women going to work in factories or in some slave labor. And I think that reveals her class origins, but it also reveals her individualism, which maybe these days is something of a dirty word. I don't know. She really, again, it comes back to she wanted women, yes, to be financially self-sufficient, but she also wanted them to fulfill their potential, whatever that was. And she used herself as a model, right? That's the sort of whatever some people consider that to be short-sighted or that say that she was universalizing something that could not be reproduced and make that sort of critique. But I actually find something kind of hopeful in in her idea that women should try to live up to their full potential in the work world. Uh, Because I don't know, I feel like this idea of individualism these days, again, it's really kind of shoved to the side. 
And, you know, Betty was talking about how, yeah, you have to compete. Yes, in capitalism, we live in capitalism, you have to compete there. And so, you know, if you're being an artist, you should just try and do, you know, everything you can to succeed. If you're being a media person, you should do everything you can. Her idea was you should not be relying on a man, your spouse, your partner, whoever to bolster you up. And in some ways sitting, you should not be sitting back. You should have your own identity. This is another point of contention about the feminine mystique. She did not really think that working class women could lead the feminist revolution because they were overworked. That was her argument. (laughs) They were overworked, right? And that's an argument that this probably does not play very well on progressive social media either. But that was her argument. And she made it several times throughout the course of her life. Which was another, I guess, critique of her and others in the 70s, that it was white middle-class movement predicated on the luxuries of time and bare necessities being taken care of or having been met, which I think has become much more deeply entrenched in contemporary gender sexual politics. The idea that we should all be self-actualized and make your own adventure is a luxury that most that many systems don't afford many people and that's the pushback right and it's i think very entrenched today and there's a kind of you know maybe one of the reasons that she has faded at in some senses that's not in vogue anymore right most people don't believe that all you have to do is find your own voice and your own courage and step out of the framework that you've been forced into. Like, it's not so simple. I think a lot of people today would say, not only is it not so simple, that's naive. Like you, most people are literally structurally in unable to do that, even if they were internally capable of doing that. What do you, I mean, what do you make of that? I agree with you that the perspective today is, I don't know, anti-middle-class in that way. And I agree with you. That's one reason, again, why Betty seems more distant. I guess also we have much less of a middle class than we did in the 60s, right? I also think, again, just I think people are so much more tribal now. I think the idea of having a women's movement that somehow unites the concerns of many different women is practically unimaginable to to me. I agree with that. It's very hard to imagine, like, Candace Owens linking arms with like the hardcore left, <laughs> the, you know, the centrist, whoever they are now. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for the conversation today. You've had an interesting series of books now from the evolution of striptease to uh, one of the leading architects of our contemporary, I guess, gender politics, for lack of a better word. Before we go, do you, are you, is this a, a through line that you're going to continue? I don't know. I like writing about these contrarian figures. You know, and I think I can do that. And so I would like to write about a different contrarian figure, maybe even a man. If anybody would like to read that, I don't know. All right, well, keep keep us posted on the hunt for the contrarian figure, the search for the contrarian, (laughs) which we certainly, in our way, try to do gently at the Progress Network. But thank you so much for your thoughts and for your book. Thank you guys for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you, Rachel. Women, persons, family of Smith. I'm glad to be able to speak to you today, that you've invited me to speak to you today. This is a very crucial time. I thought to myself, as in the middle of the night, 
thinking, you know, you have to give a cheerful speech at commencement. How can I possibly give you a cheerful, hopeful, optimistic speech today? There are those who think you take it all for granted, all the rights, all the marvelous choices, all the options that you enjoy, that you think that they are your due, the world is your oyster, that your own exceptional ability has won you those things, that nothing further has to be done, and you don't even realize that they come to you not from your own ability alone, not as great as that may be, but because of the many years of battle, the long centuries, long line of women's movement preceded you. I don't think that's true. There are those that say, you will be super women. You will be a new breed of women and you're going to go on, you know, and be corporation presidents and before the century out, we're going to have a woman's pre president and no problems. And then there are those who think that the women's movement is over, that the nation has turned in reaction, and although we can't quite figure out how it happened, in another few years you'll be home again and it will all be a dream. None of these things is true. Your situation is much more complex. I believe that we indeed have come to the end of the beginning. That you must move into the second stage. That the first stage of the sex role revolution that has changed the lives and the possibilities of life of women culminated in the modern women's movement. We'll be right back after this break. Hey, everybody. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. We're the hosts of Political Breakdown, a show that pulls back the curtain on the people and forces driving politics in the Golden State from KQED in San Francisco. And now, ahead of the 2024 election, we are bringing you even more. More conversations with the top movers and shakers at the state capitol and in national politics. But the dyslexia was the greatest gift that ever happened to me. Nothing was rote, nothing was linear. I had to work around things, work differently, see the world differently. And I say that to young people and say, know how important your participation is. And I think it's the time for this generation to put forward new voices. More reporting with analysis. It's been a very good session for organized labor. but Hot there was labor summer. Hot labor summer. It's turning out to be a nice fall as well. More politics with personality. I've sweat election day my entire life. <laughs> <laughs> we, we hear that. Political breakdown daily. Every weekday, we'll break down what's happening and why it matters. With news that informs, surprises, and maybe even inspires you. Political Breakdown goes daily starting January 8th. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome back to What Could Go Right. So much to talk about in that particular episode. And as you mentioned, Emma, during it, it'd be kind of cool to have a conversation with her and Richard Reeves about kind of the state of men and the state of women today and where that is all gone. Although it might not be the 
happiness conversation in that both of them probably feel like things have gotten gotten worse for everyone, which is not, maybe that's a step in the direction of things getting better for everyone. You have to reach a nadir before you achieve your apex, but it still would be an illuminating conversation, right? Because they're, they're, they both come at these issues of identity and how much is gender identity a thing that is central in contemporary culture, certainly was central when Betty Friedan is writing in the 60s, or it became central as a thing in the 60s and 70s. And I was also, I was struck by your, like this mix of all of these ideas feel very familiar, but the individuals and the history behind it don't. And that may just be just the reality of growing up in any society. You know, we remember certain things and forget others, but the core content of it becomes part of the cultural waters in which we're swimming. Yeah. I think the core content of like your whole life doesn't have to revolve around being a a traditional life has definitely stuck around to the point where we were saying before, it's such a given that I think almost everyone my age, if you ask them who Betty Friedan is, unless they have done feminist studies or they're involved in that history in some way, would not know. And I think a lot of my friends also wouldn't know what the feminist mystique was, but they certainly would be like, yeah, nah, if I'm just going to have to stay home with the kids, like that's not going to work for me. And I don't mean that as a derogatory against Damon about women who do that. It's very important, right? It's just that it's not for everybody to do that. And the absence of choice that was part exactly. of that. But, exactly. Yeah. The ability to choose what you want to do is the most important. I think we have achieved that today as far as like many people are able to choose. Choosing sometimes might require a, a decent amount of sacrifice, economic sacrifice, Maybe it's not possible for everybody, but it's possible for significant portions of the population. But as you know, there are also a lot of people who would push back on your statement, not in its particulars, but in just the overall assumption that anybody has a, an ability to choose within oppressive systems, right? That's a big left critique of kind of what you just said, that there are these systems of whether it's economics or society and rules that are mitigating against that choice, right? I mean, yes. I mean, there's certainly a segment of the population, right, that either like has to work because otherwise there's not food on the table. Like that's not a choice. I think that for a lot of people, like they are able to make the choice that if they want to stay home, they can. And if they don't want to stay home, they can. That might not necessarily mean that choice isn't hard, Right. Like the people I know where they have one person staying at home and the other person on one salary that's, let's say, that's not some very large figure. That's hard, but it's possible. And then this whole question of you know, we, we've joked before on the podcast of the tendency to look at Northern Europe and Scandinavian countries and go, why can't we just be more like them? Right. Because that is a clear example of much more robust maternity leave, much more robust childcare, much more awareness of if there is going to be anything resembling structural economic and like power equality between men and women. One of the things you have to equalize for is whatever period of time where women are carrying and caring for, particularly caring, but yeah, caring for someone's got to care for young children, right? It doesn't necessarily have to be mothers. And that societies that have accomplish that or at least integrated that into their framework you have more women in government and you've got more like it's a very there seems to be a very direct correlation between providing that and all these things that people have been talking about for the past 50 years in terms of more structural equality including pay equality but it's hard for us to become scandinavia i don't 
know if it really is that hard for, I mean, look, we don't have to become Scandinavia, right? We can just become a better version of the United States. I do take Rachel and sort of Betty Friedan's point very well and what you're bringing up now that the lack of focus in the United States about maternal leave and as you're saying, how that relates to representation and how that relates to the gender pay gap because, you know, the labor department says that a decent chunk of the the pay gap is not from discrimination. That's also a chunk, but a decent chunk is coming from people taking time off work to have kids and coming back in. And if that were taken care of, we'd be in a much better place. And I I do kind of wonder, like, if we did refocus on that, what would happen, even on a state-by-state level? Absolutely. So on that completely unresolved note about our past and contemporary issues, let's turn to the news and the stories that people may have missed that, that you have found. So we are starting this week's Good News Roundup with something that started really terribly, but I promise it has a bright ending. So let's go back to the 1950s when Egypt accidentally gave a bunch of its citizens hepatitis C. Uh, (laughs) I hate it when that happens. Yeah. They had a mass vaccination campaign that used unsterilized needles, and they accidentally spread hep C everywhere. And this whole story I learned about, by the way, in the New York Times, an article by Stephanie Nolan is an amazing article. So after we summarize it, I do recommend people go and check it out. So what happened after that, oopsie, is that it spread so much in the population that by 2007, one in 10 Egyptians had a chronic infection of hepatitis C, which if you don't know anything about hepatitis C, which I didn't really before I read the article, a chronic infection can lead to pretty severe liver problems like cirrhosis or liver cancer or stuff like that. So not good. And they just they just had this like massive chronic problem that they didn't really know what to do with and that the government itself had caused. So in 2013, an American pharma company made an antiviral, which the New York Times calls the first cure for a viral infection in the history of medicine. The antiviral was massively expensive, and I don't know how this happened, and I wish the article had gone into this a little bit further, but maybe they also don't know how this happened. Egypt somehow managed to negotiate a deal for the pill at only $10 a pop. Usually it was $1,000 for its once-a-day pill. And then they arranged for Indian and Egyptian drug companies to make a cheaper generic version in exchange for a royalty. After 2013, some more companies made similar antivirals for hep C. Egypt did this massive you know, screening of the population, massive uh, uptake of the antivirals. Fast forward to now, they've basically wiped it out. There's a 0.4% prevalence in the population. And they're going to help uh, other countries with a high hep C burden essentially copy what they did. But the article points out it's very unusual. Uh, usually in the global health field, you have high-income countries helping out low-income countries. But in this case, Egypt is the sort of the leader and the big major player here, which is kind of crazy how it all started, but good to see them cleaning up their mess. Literally in this case, right? Yeah, we did have this brief moment, of course, in 2020, 2021, where the attention of the world turned toward these sort of massive technological innovations in the way we develop vaccines and in the ways in which vaccines have been essential to the spread of public health throughout the 20th century. 
the the reality is, and I think this was part of the discussion and why subsidies for the COVID vaccines were necessary, is that vaccines have never been particularly good business for companies. Mm-hmm. Although at a thousand dollars a shot, you know, there's certainly a lot better business, but mass vaccines have tended not to be there's not as huge a financial incentive for biotech companies and the research companies that support them to develop mass vaccines as opposed to very high-end cure cures treatments for you know end-of-life cancer as you said a thousand dollars per pill or 50 to two hundred fifty thousand dollars for a, a course and that remains a problem in the way in which we do drug development, drug discovery, and then, of course, the commercialization of cures, because we certainly have the scientific and pharmaceutical capacity to deal with many more diseases than we deal with, but we don't necessarily have the right capital structure to lead to the deployment of those. And some of that, in the case you mentioned, is often enabled by governments that that say, look, there's a public health necessity for this. So we're going to short circuit or do an end run or close the gap between whatever the free market incentives are and what the public health incentives are. And it's interesting to note that since 2021, the leading proponent and developer of the RNA vaccines, the mRNA vaccines, Moderna, which was treated as this darling of both the financial markets and the media its stock has completely imploded since it's high, even though it developed, it did exactly what it was going to do. It spent years Mm. working on these mRNA vaccines. So you do have this example in the Egypt case of some necessity of public and private. You know, that if it's all public, governments aren't going to develop the R&D and the research and the raw science that leads to vaccine development. But the free market alone is likely either going to price them in a way that doesn't allow them to be widespread or developed in the first place. So the lesson here is somewhat what the lesson was in 2021, that these are kind of the one of the cases along with infrastructure where public-private really needs to be working in conjunction. Yeah, and that's putting aside the extra special case of the U.S. healthcare system, which I talked to a pharmacist friend about this article. She saw our TikTok about it. And she told me that, to your point about the free market not being enough in the U.S., still, it costs just as a the price, you know, maybe not that the patient is going to be paying, but the price overall for a full hep C treatment in the States is $33,000. So it's just massively expensive. And it's really surprising and unusual, as you're pointing out, that Egypt was able to manage this deal because normally that wouldn't happen. And I'm so curious about how that came about. If anyone knows, write us in, you know, tell us. Yeah, let us know. (laughs) And even that 33,000, it's not like that's the cost of goods sold, right? It didn't, it doesn't cost $33,000 to develop a hep C treatment. Mm -hmm. It costs $33,000 within the U.S. healthcare system to obtain, administer, go through the insurance, go through the the multiple stages of who's paying what, and then you get that 33. But if you're just looking at the cost of manufacturing those drugs, let alone the cost of just getting them into someone's body, it's nowhere near that 
headline number, right? It's because we have this incredibly complicated system. Anybody knows who has looked at the what the cost of a hospital bed is if you were to pay without insurance versus the cost of a hospital bed with, because the rates are partly set based on what the insurance reimbursement rate is, not based on what the actual cost of it is. So yeah, we don't live in the most rational system. That being said, it's not as if multiple public health systems, we think we talked about this briefly in our first season. One of the really astonishing things about COVID was that the public health care systems that many Americans, particularly on the left, had looked at with envious eyes, like, oh, if only we could have a public health care system like Europe, other than the Scandinavian countries, and we talked about this too, it's not like public health systems in Italy and France and Spain mm. did so much better than our messed up American health system. Same thing in Canada, which did a really good job in some respects, but in, in actually deploying vaccines during COVID did a really bad job. So you'd be hard pressed to find a very large healthcare system outside of Singapore, Norway, Denmark that does these things particularly well. But it's certainly worth noting <laughs> the ways yeah. in which the American healthcare system does them really badly. Yeah. And I think like in for our particular purposes with Waka Kore, where we talk about the narratives of, you know, fear and doom mongering in the media, I think that the other thing that I've noticed about the US healthcare system is the fear factor. 10, 15 years ago, I had surgery in the US and they do show you all the things that they actually cost before the insurance jumps in. And when you see the numbers, it's terrifying. Like you have to run through them before you get to the end line. And some people don't get to an end line where you're like, don't worry, most of this was covered. You know, and just that fear that's that's something it won't be covered or, it, you know, the insurance will fight you about it. It just, it leads to weird decision making. And it leads yeah. to this like psychological state where it's just, you're like, I'm afraid to go to the doctor, you know? I mean, that's a really good point. One of the advantages of some of the public healthcare systems is it removes all that from the equation. So they may mm -hmm. not do a very good job. There may be weights. There may be, you know, it takes you four months to get an appointment for a knee operation. Whatever that is, that's a problem. It does remove some of that anxiety around, oh my God, am I going to go bankrupt? Can I afford this? What's my out-of-pocket versus the insurance? And also, never knowing what that is. like It's not as if it's a transparent formula. Oh. Yeah, I'll never forget. I was seeing those charges for like the scalpel. They're like scalpel, dollar twenty five. I was like, have to pay for You're that? Me for the scalpel? <laughs> yeah, really? Damn. Yeah, yeah. The sheets, everything, everything. It's like ordering a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I mean, charged with the knife. <laughs> the knife. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so anyway, moving on from that nightmare, uh, I'm sure no one really wants to hear any more about that. Let's talk about the death penalty. Another. Um, oh, yeah. Another thing that yes. people we always want to talk about. <laughs> Let's change track to something uplifting. So, uh, you know, we've talked on the on the podcast before about the death penalty kind of being in long term decline in the United States. The Associated Press just did an update about this because the death penalty information center released new numbers for 2023. And it's interesting to see the absolute numbers of what's actually happening in the states because the numbers for me anyway were surprisingly low. So in 2023, the AP says via Death Penalty Information Center, there were 24 executions in the US and 21 people were sentenced to death in 2023, which was the ninth consecutive year, they say, where fewer than 30 people were executed and fewer than 50 people received death sentences. And as we've talked about before, this is happening in only a small handful of states. So it's just five states that conducted executions this year, those states being Texas, Florida, Missouri, Oklahoma, and Alabama. 
And that was the lowest number in 20 years. So that's all, you know, if you most, a lot of more Americans than ever are anti-death penalty. So that I think that will ring as positive for a lot of people. I will also include the kind of it's kind of nasty stuff that was going in the other direction, which is that Alabama has set a January date for the nation's first attempt to execute someone with nitrogen gas. And Idaho, for some reason, authorized executions by firing squad, becoming the fifth state to do so, although we haven't actually executed anyone that way since 2010. I think some of the reasons for that is apparently it's increasingly hard to get the drug cocktail and that some of the drug makers have ceased to make the components mm. of the drug cocktail. So states that wished to end people's lives via judicial execution are in need of alternate ways of doing so. It, so if you're a European listening to this, and we do have quite a few listeners outside the United States, the very fact that the United States has a death penalty and executes anyone is seen as intensely retrograde and somewhat barbaric. And it, it is definitely true that Amongst developed nations, the United States is something of an outlier in even having a death penalty that's legal at a federal level, even though, as you said, not really prevalent in most states of the union. I mean, it could be, it just isn't because most states prefer not to do so and don't have populations that support it. What is intriguing in all this is that even in states that are quite supportive of the death penalty, there's very little actual executions, as in there's far more people on death row than there are people who will ever be executed. Because, well, one, there has been a really a beneficial, I think, effect, hard to quantify precisely, of groups like the Innocence Project, which went through old DNA samples and just the sheer number of past convictions that have been invalidated by subsequent DNA evidence that shows that eyewitness accounts have been wrong, I think has led to an, an awareness of it's one thing to wrongly imprison someone who can then be set free. But if you've executed someone, it, you basically it's very hard to do that. That's yeah. meant to be a profound understatement. It's hard to... <laughs> It's hard to release an executed person. So there has been increasing caution over you better be sure that the person that you're doing this ultimate punitive sentence for is guilty of whatever they've been found guilty of. And I will say one other caveat to this discussion, which is the United States is also unusual in its use of solitary confinement, unusual in developed nations, right? I mean, Brazilian prison conditions, Indian prison conditions, lots of the world's prison conditions are significantly worse than the United States, although the United States is hardly a, a shining beacon. Uh, and life imprisonment as a technique or laying on consecutive sentences without the hope of parole. Prison populations are going down, prison reform, there's a lot to be said of it, even with the sliding back after COVID, given that the rise of public safety concerns and challenges to bail reform, we've talked about this on a few of our episodes. So there's a general, there's less people in prison in the United States per capita than there were. The United States still imprisons more people per capita than most developed nations. So there's a lot of yes and no, yes and but, one step forward, two steps back, two steps forward, one step back. I do think the death penalty one is fascinating because you know, in this case, it's it's almost as if most states, even with the dental death penalty, have held to the principle of, have, of having a death penalty more than 
an aggressive rush to actually execute people. And again, if you're European, you're probably going, this is like discussing different ways to torture someone nicely. So, I mean, I get the fact that there are people who probably object to the whole premise of this conversation, which is the very fact that you have a death penalty removes you from consideration as having made any productive changes. But you know, we're also in the society we're in and any movements toward a more balanced approach toward criminal justice is a good thing. Yeah. And it's, they also mentioned that public perception is changing too. You know, you mentioned the Innocent Project and other things. Gallup started asking the question, I believe in 2000, do you believe that the death penalty is applied fairly? And the amount that it's, that do believe that it's applied fairly has been inching downward over the years. So there's definitely some of that work, as you mentioned, has been filtering into the public. And I do think slowly. We will see that across all the states. I think 20 states right now have made the death penalty illegal or are following moratoriums on the death penalty. So we're almost at half. So there you go. Thank you all for listening. We will be back next week. And again, comments, thoughts, ideas, suggestions, criticisms, venting politely into the ether all are welcome at the progress network and what could go right please sign up for our newsletter weekly also called what could go right so go on to the progressnetwork.org and sign up it's free it will cost you only your time time that we think is well spent so and speaking of writing in, people do that and we do love it and appreciate it. For instance, we got a YouTube comment on our episode that talked about child mortality rates. And I wanted to just give a quick mention of that where we had talked about child mortality rates in the 1950s being around 27%, which I said was one in three kids. More like one in four. That's closer to 25%, not 30%. So thank you for the correction. I believe Richard is his name and we appreciate your you know, eagle eye on our data presentation because we do try to be specific and precise here. Keeping us honest. Because mm. otherwise, we would, of course, be dishonest. Well, <laughs> hopefully not. But okay, fine, we do appreciate fine, a public fact-checking. <laughs> we do, in fact, appreciate a public fact-checking. That is absolutely correct. So fact-check us. Go on. Fact-check us. Thanks again for listening, and we will be with you next week. What Could Go Right is produced by Andrew Steven, executive produced by Jeff Umbro and The Plug Glomerate. To find out more about What Could Go Right, The Progress Network, or to join the What Could Go Right newsletter, visit theprogressnetwork.org. Thanks for listening.